All right, so we're going to cover a case study that was published recently on a frozen shoulder, which was later classified as derangement using a mechanical diagnosis and therapy. The link, or sorry, the you'll find the citation at the end of the presentation. My name is Vince Gutierrez. I'm a doctor of physical therapy. I'm also credentialed in mechanical diagnosis and therapy. So first, MDT has high reliability for spine classification when performed by trained PTs. And this is, uh, can be a misnomer because you have to define trained, right? There was a study done by, oh, I know Scott Herbowie was either second or third author on the study. I don't remember, maybe Appledorn was uh, lead author, where they looked at those who had taken the courses A through D and those that were CERT or DIP and found that there was still uh, an issue with classification unless you actually completed the certification process or the diploma process. So anyway, mechanical diagnosis and therapy is a systematic assessment in order to classify and then that classification um, leads you directly towards your treatment. And when you classify patients using this method, they classify as derangement, dysfunction, postural, or other. Uh, Institute is slowly changing the way that they're they're terming these because you know nobody wants to be classified as deranged or dysfunctional. So yeah, it's it's do you have a directional preference? Um, are you mechanically responsive or not? So the goal was to detail the process used to identify a directional preference during evaluation with treatment based on this response. And like I said. The, the primary objective using this system is to attempt to classify the patient because that is going to lead into your treatment. History, 52-year-old female with pain and limited range of motion after striking her shoulder on a refrigerator. Negative for fracture. The diagnosis was adhesive capsulitis. Patient was re referred to PT, presents with intermittent symptoms. Worse with overhead motions twisting doorknobs that's actually a pretty interesting one to, to hear for adhesive capsulitis because when I picture twisting a doorknob there's no major shoulder issue uh, you're looking at pronation supination and and opening jars again it, it doesn't match because uh, adhesive capsulitis you're looking at multi-directional loss of range of motion but you should be fairly strong at least based off of the uh, previous research you should be fairly strong in mid-range and um, opening jars shouldn't necessarily be an issue. Limited with hanging wallpaper, um, part of the career for this person. Pain with lifting, that doesn't give us enough information. So again, with adhesive capsulitis or some sort of frozen shoulder, or if you're classifying it based off of MDT and articular dysfunction, you don't expect pain in mid-range or in that patient's mid-range with lifting. And so if they're lifting something at, you know, in that green zone for OSHA, you don't expect to see pain with an articular dysfunction. And the patient had limited ability to care for grandchildren. And, and I could understand that, you know, if you're picking your grandchildren up over your head, that could be limited. If you're, you're going to reach into a cabinet, that could be limited with, uh, with adhesive capsulitis. And so there's, there's not enough detail there to, to start to wean through whether or not all of this is making sense with that classification of an articular dysfunction or adhesive capsulitis. Past history was unremarkable. The goal was to return to work, be able to perform ADLs, and to return to volunteering without worsening. 
during the physical exam, yeah, you know, I struggle with this because they, the, the authors put down cardiovascular normal. I don't know what normal means. You know, normal, um, normal high, normal on blood pressure medications, normal, I mean, is normal to me is 120 over 80 without any issues. Um, and so I, I struggle with that, that normal um, moniker, and, and, and they do that multiple times in the article. And that's just me. That's my personal preference. I, I want to know the details. Uh, integumentary, normal, meaning no wounds. Neuromuscular, normal, I'm assuming they took reflexes. Uh, I'm not quite sure how they got to, to normal. Communication, normal. Musculoskeletal was impaired. Patient had normal strength. But the left glenohumeral joint was impaired with uh, limitations in range of motion and limitations with pain. And pain with elbow motions, including supination and pronation. And again, with uh, adhesive capsulitis or a frozen shoulder or an articular dysfunction, whatever you want to call it at this point, you don't necessarily expect pain with supination and pronation because it doesn't, doesn't match the picture of end-range shoulder pain. Clinical impression. So the hypothesis initially was an articular dysfunction based off of the diagnosis of adhesive capsulitis. Again, there are some parts of the history that do not match adhesive capsulitis. But the patient had restricted movements in all directions. That could match adhesive capsulitis. So you, you could have multiple things going on, and I believe that's in one of the next slides. Uh, it'll come up in a second here. But you could have multiple things going on with this patient. And so the question is, is do you have one classification or do you have a mixture of multiple classifications and at that point your goal is to try to find the driving classification to help lead you to treatment upon the examination the upper extremity functional index the ufi it's a very common measure used in physical therapy was a 55 out of 80 and for this one the higher you score the better you are a zero out of 80 would be considered most impaired pain level ranges from a four to seven out of ten during the day when we look at passive range of motion in terms of degrees, here's the chart that's in there. You can see that the left shoulder has limited range of motion and everything, except for maybe internal rotation. It's not too bad. But everything else is fairly limited in terms of passive range of motion. Patient does, or the therapist does a few tests, the crank test, uh, which was negative. But they had a positive empty can, positive speeds, and a positive Hawkins-Kennedy. The empty can is performed in mid-range, and so with adhesive capsulitis, you don't expect a positive empty can. Speeds test is also performed at mid-range, and if you look at their flexion, they have 155 degrees of passive flexion, and so you don't necessarily expect a positive speeds test either. Hawkins-Kennedy, you may get that with end-range testing for, for this patient, and so that might you know, that typically leads you to what's called an impingement um, diagnosis. But again, the special test doesn't really tell us that or no. And um, uh, it could just be testing at end range for that patient. So they did a repeated movement exam for the patient and they did scapular retraction, which was interesting to me because you don't read scapular retraction uh, associated with MDT frequently. Um, when I think scapular retraction performed repeatedly, the first thing that my mind jumps to is uh, Jeremy Lewis's uh, shoulder symptom modification procedure, uh, the, the, the scapular sub subclassification, you know, where they look at the tilt for either um, a retraction or a posterior tilt or anterior tilt or abduction to, to change symptoms. 
And when the patient performed scapular retraction repeatedly, the patient was had decreased pain and was better after completing the motion. Patient also had full range of motion. That's awesome. And in the McKenzie method, that would be classified as a derangement at that point because you have fast changing symptoms. But full range of motion, that's important to, to take away from that because if the patient was classified as an articular dysfunction, meaning they had end range pain, uh, articular dysfunctions typically take time to change. Okay, they take time to remodel tissues over the course of time. Um, and that's, you know, if you follow the research, that's assuming it can be remodeled. And these patients don't tend to change rapidly. You know, frozen shoulders don't tend to change rapidly. And there's some research to show that even after two years, you may still see no change. But if you change the range of motion immediately, then whatever happened within that shoulder has changed quickly, right? And so you have to start questioning the original diagnosis of adhesive capsulitis. And we're not going to diagnose anything here, but we're going to subclassify this into something that makes sense for us. Repeated flexion had no effect on pain or range of motion. Repeated internal rotation or external rotation increased symptoms and the patient remained worse after and the range of motion became restricted again. So now what you have is you can turn the symptoms off, you can increase range of motion, but then you can also turn the symptoms on and you can decrease range of motion. Okay, that doesn't sound like an adhesive capsulitis because it's, again, adhesive capsulitis is slow changing. These derangements are fast changing. And that's the easiest way for me to explain the difference between dysfunction and derangement is slow changing, fast changing. They then followed up with shoulder extension, which if, if I am in the clinic and this is me working with a patient, I don't know if I would have gone to shoulder extension next, right? And, and even when you read the McKenzie textbooks or, you know, MDT textbooks, when you find something that reduces the patient's symptoms or and the patient is overall better as a result, your evaluation is essentially over. You found the reductive force question is, 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 did it completely resolve or not? And you would send the patient away with that. And, and that's, that's what it says in the textbooks is you're quite okay with ending your evaluation at that point. If I find something that increases the patient's symptoms and worsens the patient overall, I don't necessarily go to a new motion altogether. I go back to the original motion, which would have been scapular retraction in this case, to see if the patient continues to get the response of decreased and better with full range of motion. But the authors in this case, they went to extension. And, and they talk a little bit about it in the discussion because extension is, seems to be the most common pattern that you see for, uh, for some of the different joints, including the lumbar spine, cervical spine. But, um, but they, they do go to extension next. And again, the patient was decreased and better after with full range of motion. So me personally, I might have gone back to scapular retraction because if you get the the result with scapular retraction, you have no reason to add in a second motion, assuming the patient's symptoms are completely abolished with full range of motion, which they were. And so now the new impression, you have options, right? And so you have the possibility for an articular dysfunction. And, and again, this is based off of the initial evaluation, not based off of the repeat of motion exams, because initially the patient presented with multiple directions of uh, range of motion limitations. And that would fit that articular dysfunction, um, which would match the diagnosis of adhesive capsulitis. You also have a new one that you have to add in, which is a contractile dysfunction, because the pa patient had pain 
with uh, your empty can test. And so that empty can test leads you to that uh, rotator cuff dysfunction. You finally have a derangement of the shoulder and you look at the derangement because you know there's rapid change of symptoms and the patient's range changed immediately after performing repeated movements. And so again, just a, a quick you know, thought as to how I work in the clinic. If I'm looking at the difference between derangement, dysfunction, dysfunction, it's always going to be tackle the derangement first because the derangement is fast changing, right? In order for you to have effect on tissue, it typically looks at about six weeks, right? And, um, and if you're looking at changing range of motion or, or for a prolonged period of time, changing range of motion for, um, for, for a prolonged result, um, or remodeling tissue, you're looking at at least six weeks. Whereas these derangements, again, fast changing symptoms, they change in front of your eyes, okay? And so I'll typically go after the derangement first, and that's exactly what they did in the article. And based off of the response that they got at the initial evaluation, they expected a full recovery in a very short period of time. The question to, to ask, though, is why do those special tests to begin with? Patient's history started to sound like adhesive capsulitis, but they went forward and did testing for the empty can test. And it, it doesn't make sense to me why layer on a bunch of testing for a patient um, if it's not going to greatly assist your, your uh, clinical decision making. And so, you know, Hawkins Kennedy, um, first thing is tests done in isolation, they don't give you a lot of information. Okay, so the empty can test can give you some information, um, but in used with other testing clusters, right? And so the impingement test can give you inf information when used with other testing clusters. But uh, to use these tests in isolation, they don't give you a lot of information. What they do do, what they do do, do do, uh, what they do for you is uh, <laughs> they give you something that has provoked the patient's symptom, and then at that time, you can go back and retest it later to see if it actually, if the patient's symptoms are actually reducing. So the interventions, they did education regarding both adhesive capsulitis and derangement. Um, I, you know, I do this sometimes when there are competing classifications. I'll educate the patient to let them know what we expect with each one as you send them away with, um, with their exercise for the day. So that way they know what to expect when they're at home. So yeah, I, I don't necessarily have a problem with educating on both, even though the patient came in with the diagnosis of adhesive capsulitis and you're classifying as a derangement. I don't necessarily have a problem with educating on both. Uh, they did UBE um, and, and you know, they talk about you know, improving synovial fluid and, and, and trying to just warm up the shoulder. And that's, that's fine, I don't have a problem with that either as long as it doesn't uh, worsen symptoms. Uh, interventions initially used were scapular depression, rose, post postural ed education, and they were issued scapular retraction and glenohumeral extension for the home exercise program, and this would have been roughly 40 reps is how it's written, four to five times a day. So they're getting a ton of repetitions of this in. And, and again, if you find a directional preference, um, there's nothing wrong with giving them a lot of a lot of repetitions, and that's actually what's recommended, is multiple times per day. And you have to, again, educate the patient to let them know that if they feel they need it more frequently because the symptoms are improving, but the last, 
the lastingness, I don't know if that's a word, but the ability to last of that improvement, if that's not there, they may need to do it more frequently. External rotation was added at visit four, and just like on day one, it provoked the all other it provoked all other movements. Um, and you know, it wasn't added in because when they added it in, it, it worsened their symptoms. And the patient was discharged at visit six, and they never cover this again, whether or not they added uh, shoulder external rotation again. Um, oh, I know where I was going with added in without worsening. They added in other movements at visit four, um, as long as they didn't worsen the patient's symptoms, but external rotation did worsen the patient's symptoms, so they did not add it in, and the patient was discharged two visits later. Outcomes, the UEFI, Went from a 55 up to uh, 66. That's a significant improvement. A nine-point change is considered significant. The goal was a 75 out of 80, so you know they didn't reach the goal, but they did reach significance. Again, this is over the course of six visits. The visual analog scale, so on a scale of zero to 10, how bad is your pain? Went from a four down to a zero at current. You know, so when a patient walks in, on a scale of zero to 10, how bad is your symptoms? On day one, it was a four. On day six, it was a zero. Typically, I ask, you know, at best, at worst. And so at worst, this patient's pain went from a 7 out of 10 down to a 2 out of 10. So the patient symptoms weren't completely abolished at this point because they could still be provoked during, during their day. Uh, the empty can flipped from a positive to a negative. Um, you know, over the course of six visits, they don't tell you how many weeks went by. And so this could be natural healing that improved the symptoms. Could have been time that improved the symptoms. Could have been any uh, any variable of, of, of interventions or things that have actually happened to that person during the day that flipped that empty can from positive to negative. And the same thing for the UEFI and the VAS. Speeds test flipped from positive to negative and the Hawkins-Kennedy flipped from positive to negative. Uh, the range of motion was equal to the opposite side as of the final visit. And again, you, you can't just say that it was because of the directional preference exercise, especially when, it's, when this all happens over the course of time, because it could have been from uh, natural history or regression to the mean, which is a, a statistical, that doesn't matter. Could have been because of natural history. So discussion, they, in the article, they talk a little bit about directional preference of the shoulder and the different patterns that you may see and you know essentially shoulder extension is very common. I don't remember them going into Jeremy Lewis's research um, for the shoulder symptom modification procedure in the discussion um, even though again me personally I don't tend to read too much about scapular movements in uh, MDT to change shoulder symptoms. It would still be classified as a derangement based off of the method but um, because you're getting a fast change, right? But you don't tend to see it uh, in, in literature for MDT. You tend to see it more for the SSMP. They covered a little bit about Susan Mercer's research, and if you haven't read it, uh, you know, look into Susan Mercer's research where they, they speak to you know, possible joint um, uh, Issues that are that are within the joint, such as fat pads or you know cartilaginous tissue, that may be within the joint that can move in and out of the joint during motion. And again, they 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 hypothesize that at visit four, when they added in shoulder external rotation, that they may have moved something from that was out of the joint back into the joint with that motion. And performing the directional preference exercise may have moved that back out of the joint. And again, these are all just thoughts. Um, 
you don't have anything real time to tell you exactly what's happening in there um, anatomically. So, you know, just theories at this point, but the most important thing to take from it is that the patient was better. <laughs> and uh, we can't explain specifically why the patient is better with doing directional preference. All that we know is that it has a rapid change within session on their symptoms and that within session, that within session change lingered for a period of time. Um, they never really came back to address adding shoulder external rotation back into their interventions. So you don't know if this patient fully regained um, full pain-free range of motion in all directions. Here's the, the citation. So, you know, again, recommend reading the, the article. Um, it's a fun case report to read, and for those of you that are looking to learn more about this system, I highly recommend it. Thanks for watching. This podcast is meant for educational purposes only. The views expressed during this podcast are that of the creator, Dr. Vince Gutierrez, and do not reflect the views of the authors that are cited during the podcast. Again, this is for educational and entertainment purposes only. If you have a physical limitation or a pain, please seek out a licensed professional. Thank you for listening.